another exciting episode of The Voluntary Tackle, a podcast that has been lucky enough to land a chat with yet another former rugby league legend. The man we're about to talk to has played 200 first grade games in Australia, including 177 of those for the Melbourne Storm. Not content with a successful career in first grade, this man has also played 12 games for Australia, five for the New South Wales Blues and 45 matches in the English Super League for London. Of course, that man I refer to is the extremely crafty 5'8", Scott Hill. Welcome to the show, mate. Thanks, boys. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no worries. It's an, honestly an honour to have you on the pod. Uh, look, before we get into the career, I know we had a bit of a, a chat before the show, but um, adapting to this lockdown situation, have you got any messages for our listeners out there to handle lockdown who might be stuck in the house with their family for the first time in ages? Oh, look, at the end of the day, it's, um, you know, it is what it is. And you sort of, I think, you know, I'm someone that sort of likes to try and you know, extract positives out of, you know, these sorts of situations and, you know, it's probably something that gives families an opportunity to sort of catch up, you know, and really become grounded as a family again, you know, and this day and age, you know, we don't we aren't ever see each other because of, you know, either work and commitments and everything outside of the family. So, you know, you, you look at it from that point of view that it's a really good opportunity for family to really, you know, um, become back to one of the family and sort of, you know, spend quality time together. So, you know, and, and there's so many things you can do to keep yourself active and, you know, exercising and things like that is something that I, you know, do daily. That when I do that, it's, you know, I do go a bit ratty, you know, crazy, you know. So it's there's an opportunity for, for us to really, you know, um, as, as a society really to, to become grounded about what our, what our true, true values and what are our... Well, it means a lot to us, you know? <laughs> Mate, that's pretty profound stuff. Uh, I think you're probably right there. There's a, a lot of families out there who probably ordinarily don't have the opportunity to check in with each other. Uh, I'm just a little concerned because, uh, you know, I'm stuck inside the house. Well, I shouldn't use the word stuck. I'm with my wife at the moment and we're working together at home. And uh, I guess I'm just a little worried that she'll uh, get to know me too well and divorce me. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, that's it, mate. Yeah, well. I think mean, you, you made a decision to tie the knot for some reason, anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And look, it's six months in lockdown. At least I get another six months of the marriage if it all goes horribly wrong, but hopefully it won't. But, mate, before we get into your first-grade career, I thought uh, it might be a good opportunity to uh, find out how you got involved in rugby league. Was rugby league always your first choice growing up? Yeah, I guess I, I, I came to a family of three boys. I was the youngest of three boys. Um, my father played league. He coached my... My older brother, uh, and so you know, they were six and four years older than me. So you know, I was I was a little snotty kid that just went to training, and that's just what you did, you know. And yeah. I suppose that's that's what got me involved in rugby league. And you know, from that point on, from when I was eight, when I could play, I just started playing myself. So just naturally, that was sort of, I guess, what you. It's like most sports in Australia. You know, we 
we all sort of gravitate to what our what our parents or our father did or our mum did, and um, you know that's how it sort of came about for me. And were you always a, a sort of a natural sort of five eight playmaker type, or what were you sort of uh, position wise in your juniors? Yeah, it was all, yeah, it was always a half. Um, you know, I guess it's just something that you're naturally born into, and you know, sort of yeah, always had that ability to read the game, I suppose. Now, mate, I actually didn't know this before today, but um, you actually debuted for the Dogs. I believe you played about five or so games. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your debut match? I believe that was against the South Sydney Rabbitohs at the SFS. And if my research is correct, you actually scored a double off the bench that day. Is that accurate? <laughs> you are, mate. You are. <laughs> Done um, my research. Yeah, no, look, um, yeah, a lot of people forget about my debut at the Dogs, you know, obviously. Um, I was actually signed at the Hunter Mariners at the start of 97, uh, 96, actually. And Super League obviously didn't go ahead. If that had gone ahead, I would have been um, part of the Hunter Mariners under-19 squad. Yeah, um, wow, I didn't know that. But, yeah, but as it was, because Super League didn't go ahead, I got, obviously, Super League funded the, the Dogs. I got transferred to the Dogs. And, um, and then, luckily enough, that year, played in the 19s, and then... To my luck, Dogs won one in 95 and, you know, they knew about eight rounds out that they weren't going to make the semis and and Chris Anderson saw me in the 19 that Terry Lamb was retiring and he, he went to the board actually and said to them, I said, I want to play this kid in, um, that's playing lock in the, in the 19 and they said, you couldn't do it to him. They said, he's a time with ears. <laughs> <laughs> that's about what I was, you know, and... Um, so he said, look, go and have a game reserve yet. I did. Um, found that quite easy. And then I was lucky enough to play the last Terry Lamb's, in Terry Lamb's last five games. So that in itself was a was a privilege to myself, you know. Um, and, and I suppose I can always have that word that I've got a 100% strike rate strike record with uh, the Dogs. I never lost the game. I was actually going to ask you uh, how that transfer to the Hunter Mariners happened. Can you walk us through what life was like being part of a brand-new franchise like that? Yeah, look, I still put it down as my most enjoyable year of my career. Wow. Um, it was just... Look, obviously, I went back there because I was obviously contracted them. Um, I was a new face of the top squad, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, I was there in the 19th and I went straight into the top squad. But, um, oh, look... It was just a, we had a really good bunch of guys. Um, yeah, it was a challenge with the Knights there, but, you know, we were all, we were all grown men and we all got on, you know, with the Knights guys to a certain degree. And, but it was it was just a concept um, in itself. It was so different, you know, scorers kick and a lot of different opportunities. You know, the World Cup Challenge was a, was a full competition within the two two hemispheres, you know, which was exciting, you know, I. I clearly remember we played Brisbane Broncos on the Friday night on my 20th birthday. Okay, right. We beat the Broncos at Topper Stadium there um, in Newcastle. And on Sunday, I was in Paris. <laughs> you must be going, um, where I, am I? And, and then on Wednesday night, I was at a bar in the Shops of Lisey and John McEnroe's band was playing with the French Open at the same time. <laughs> and I was having drinks with... Um, uh, is it Rachel McClellan? My so, God, that almost sounds like someone's and acid trip. And I'm a twenty-year-old mate, so um, you know, in that year for us, we didn't 
get to the semis in the, in the actual Australian competition, but we ended up going through to, we went back to England again, beat Wigan at Central Park, come back and beat Cronulla at Cronulla, and we, we got beaten by Broncos in Auckland in the, in the final of the World Club Challenge. So for me that year was, was such a great experience. I travelled the world and, you know, and grew a lot as a footballer. It was my first real year as a first-grade footballer, you know, so pretty exciting. Mate, it would have been, and and look, you mentioned that you, you had quite a few, um, you know, quality players in that squad. I mean, you look at the likes of Brett Kamali, Robbie Lott Ross, the Iro brothers, Tyron Smith, Noel Goldthorpe. I mean, this was no mug team for a for a first up franchise. You must have enjoyed playing around those kind of guys. Yeah, it was. It was just um, not only good footballers, they were good people, and we had a really good and mother. We had you know the late mother, God bless him, and. Um, as a coach, he was really good at bringing people together, and yeah, it was a, um, a really exciting sort of uh, year of football. And, and you look, you, you go back to and you look at the players that have come out of the Hunter Mariners. There's, there's some pretty good footballers that have that have gone on to some pretty successful careers out of that out of that franchise. That's for sure. Yeah, I know, and and that can always go either way, can't it? Sometimes the uh, the new franchise, it's difficult to lure star players straight away but it sounds like whoever was doing the recruiting there uh, did a, a pretty good job of it oh, you mentioned before and I found this really fascinating obviously that Newcastle Knights been such an entrenched brand there uh, when the Mariners were set up did you find that there was any consternation amongst the, the, the locals of having a second team was it very much an us and them attitude or was it um, more of a well, it's all, we're all in this together sort of thing yeah I think I think the media portray a different approach as they do in anything really um, yeah fair enough um, you know yeah the, the, the pub, publicity of the club it was us versus them and so forth but between behind closed doors you know we caught up with the nice guys on different occasions there's never any hard feelings at the end of the day we're doing what we love to do and you know and conditions at certain clubs for a certain reason you know so um, there was never an issue that way and um, you know those Was it true, Scott, that uh, the Mariners tried to land the signatures of the Johns brothers? I've, I've always heard that in dispatches, but never knew if there was any truth in that or not. I, I, I wouldn't know, mate. They might have done it in the early days, you know. Yeah. Uh, I'd say they would have, you know. They would have. It would have. The Super League tried to lure everyone, obviously, you know, with, with um, a big fake ticket. People say the Super League wasn't good for the game. Like, Super League was the best thing for the players anyway. For, you know, players to start getting paid their, their their piece of the revenue, you know. It was quite funny that the ARL and the, and the top players were getting 80 grand and then all of a sudden they went from 80 to 800. Um, it sort of it opened up some, some eyes and doors for, for the players to start getting paid what they deserved, you know. Scott, you mentioned before a bunch of players from the Mariners um, ended up going on to have great careers, uh, yourself included, obviously. A number of them migrating to the Melbourne Storm to be a part of the new team in 1998 down in Melbourne. Um, it, I guess, you know, they ended up getting a lot of great players from a lot of defunct clubs, the Western Reds included. When you went down there, Scott, did you think this is a pretty exciting time in my life? I'm surrounded by some great players here, another new franchise. Did you ever anticipate you'd have such immediate success as the Melbourne Storm did? Oh, mate, I was, I was, just, I was excited. I was a 20 year old, you know, going to play with Wayne Lazarus, Tawara Nickow, you know, folks like 
of that calibre, being coached by Chris Anderson, I looked at it more as excitement to play footy. And, you know, the great thing of what, they, what John Rebo and Chris Anderson did at Melbourne Storm, they bring together, I guess, the luxury we had was the majority of the plays were from Perth and the Hunter Marys. So you're virtually just pulling two teams together and then they just had a, a pick of players that were high calibre to, to integrate into that, those two teams, you know. And when you've got a good coach that, that comes from a club that's all about family base and you've got a good administrator that knows your stuff, you know, from an ministry point of view and going into, you know, AFL heartland, um, I guess the recipe was, was a good one. Um, but, you know, in all ways, you, you've got to... You've got to have a good set of leadership. You've got to have good people that want to be there, that want to be a part of something that can can change the history of rugby league. And, you know, we were very fortunate to have a good bunch of people there and a good bunch of players. And, and we, we knew what we were there for and we were excited to do it, to be a part of it. Mate, that's a really great way of putting it. I've never actually thought about it like that before. It was essentially a merger of two teams, wasn't it? I, I knew that it was a big crop from each each club. Um, but now that you say it like that, I guess that makes a lot more sense. Well, I noticed that obviously you went down there and you reunited with, with Chris Anderson. Was that a coincidence or did Chris Anderson sort of seek you out? Yeah, no, obviously he, he had me, well, he gave me the opportunity of the Bulldogs, obviously, and then understood that I was, you know, hence uh, So we were going to go to the Gold Coast, that didn't happen. So I actually didn't get down to Melbourne until January. Um, Right. So I didn't do it. Didn't do a pre-season. Um, yeah, I didn't sign until the, the Hunter Mariners um, Gold Coast move got sort of knocked on the head. Yeah, right. Um, so that was that's what was going to happen. The Mariners were going to push the move to the Gold Coast, but that didn't happen. So you actually didn't um, know that. Yeah. So so I actually didn't sign with the storm until sort of January um, '98. A lot of us actually probably lost obviously it already signed there but you know the, the majority the rest of it the other sort of six of us we were all sort of part of that crew that was possibly going to go to the Gold Coast as Arna Mariners and what was it like playing under Chris Anderson mate you would have more of a flavour of playing under him at the Melbourne Storm what what were his strengths as a coach oh, he was just he was just very good at um, breaking down egos very simple Chris Anderson but it we're getting people to buy into what we're, what the cause was. Um, very very family orientated, so that was a good thing, you know. As, as players, we went down there, we didn't know anyone, so we got to know each other really really well. He's very good at bringing people together that way, and and you know we we were a family. That's what we were. We're in a family in a foreign area, so we all got to know each other. When you when you're emotionally so engaging and connecting with people, it's quite amazing what sort of uh, outcome that can can have uh, on the development of the football team. Yeah. And, um, he was very good at doing that. And, and I still believe that he was probably the most successful kangaroos coach. Um, and you look at his success rate, had he had nobody had a heart attack, he probably would have been, <laughs> he would have, you know, went a, bit, went a lot longer. But, yep. And I think that's his strength. He's, when, you, when you're coaching a, a top side, it's, you, don't have to, you don't have to technically coach anyone. You've got to break down egos mm. and get everyone to get on the same page and want to work for each other. Um, and he was very good at doing that, you know. And and that recipe worked really well at us in Melbourne because that's what it was about. It was about bringing a lot of different individuals together 
and have them buy into what what's important and what we need to do to, to play football. And you know, we we played we were pretty basic, but we had some we had some pretty good footballers amongst it. And you know, definitely, uh, uh, you know, was a was a great recipe for success. That's for sure. Mate, I never really thought about that, but the fact that you were so isolated from the rest of the clubs and in a new city, as you kind of put it there, in foreign territory, are you saying that you guys sort of used that to your advantage and sort of solidified more relationships that way by being so disconnected from everywhere else? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you ate, trained, ate, did everything with each other, you know, because you didn't really have it, know anyone else. So even your downtime, we're either playing golf or we're going surfing or we're doing something. Yeah. You know, with the people that you know, and that's and all we knew were were the club. You know, so that 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 was a that was a positive, and and I think it's still a positive to Melbourne. And we, you know, even in my late late years at Melbourne, it was it was our strength. You know, we were in a bubble. You know, mm. and and when we travelled away, we were still in that bubble. You know, and 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 I think it's such a it's such a it's just a strength to. Especially out of media, media, media is probably, I believe, is more worse than what it is good. You know, to, to young footballers, you know, the more you read about yourself, the more you want to bloody sit in the comfortable chair and think you're just, it's just going to happen. You know, <laughs> yeah. There's, you know, there's no publicity in Melbourne really about the Melbourne Storm, just a little bit. And not now they probably get a fair bit more, but but it's just one of the one of the positives about being that one town city that's not really rugby league, you know, driven. It's you know, AFL driven, so you know, there's not really those sort of um, white noise extra, uh, sort of distractions mm. for players to worry about. And it probably uh, doesn't inflate the ego too much if you're not hearing your own name in the press as much, I imagine, as well. Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly right. That's what I sort of said, you know. You know, getting positive media sometimes for me, and I try and teach young footballers these days, any media is rubbish, you yeah, know. Fair and enough. probably positive media is probably worse than negative. Because it, it puts you in that self, self, self sense of security and thinking that you, you don't have to work hard. Yeah. Is that something, just as a bit of a segue, Scott, do you reckon that's a factor in the Latrell Mitchell sort of saga that continued on in the off-season? It sort of, he became the subject of a lot of headlines there, uh, probably unnecessarily so from a lot of quarters, I'd say. And that uh, probably raises a lot of players' anxiety levels, I'd imagine. What's your take on that? Yeah, yeah I think so, you know. As I said, media, I don't, you know, when you're in our game, in rugby league, I don't take too much notice of it. And that's something that we had ingrained in us anyway, Melbourne, we just didn't take any notice of it, you know. And But it, it is, individually, it's very hard not to. You know, everyone likes to be told, you know, naturally, we all like to give, be praised, but it's about how you take that praise mm. and what you do with it. It's always good to, yeah, accept it and enjoy it while you can. And then it's about distancing yourself from it and moving on and, and going back to what, what what got you to where you are. That's the biggest thing. But I don't think all clubs teach that, you know, and all individuals handle it differently, you know. And Latrell, you know, I don't know he, I don't know the people around him, his mentors and different things like that. So, you know, in a way, that's, I think that's their role is to be able to help distance him from that, you know, and have a clearer mind about what he's really doing and why, why is he doing it, you know. And yeah. I, I don't think he does. At the moment, I don't think he even knows that, you know. So, you know, if Latrell went to Melbourne, I think he'd be successful. Look at, you know, Josh Adokar, you know. And I, whether it's a podcast or not, you know, even I worry if Josh leaves Melbourne. He's grown to be a good good individual, a good role model. But 
I truly believe, I've seen a lot that have left, left Melbourne and it's gone the other way, you know, and into that Sydney environment. And, um, sometimes it can be a, uh, a bit of a challenge, you know. So, you know, for, for Latrell, going back to Latrell, I just think, you know, Melbourne would have been an ideal club for Latrell because they just would have really grounded him mm. to um, who he is and, you know, really start teaching about accountability to himself and his family and, and really just concentrate on that, you know. And at the moment, I, I think he's a little bit... Well, I, I see from my point of view, yeah, he, he's a little bit confused and, and I can understandably understand why with the amount of media he's getting left, right, centre and, you know, pressure from different angles. So, you know, look... That's Wayne's job. He's got to handle that now. Um, so, uh, good luck, Wayne. Yeah, that's right. Well, if there's one man that can do it, Wayne Bennett is sort of known for being a great man manager. I think that's a great point, Scott. A lot of players talk about that Sydney bubble, and some actually actively try to avoid going inside the, the Sydney bubble. I noticed, you know, Curtis Scott made the move from Melbourne, and I think he basically put the red pen through any Sydney side because he didn't want to be inside that bubble and went to Canberra for that very reason. So... Yeah, there's definitely something to that. Obviously, it's on the on the minds of some players, at least. Yeah, I think it is. You know, and um, and, and sometimes, and we all have we all have vices. And, um, you know, some players, yeah. You know, I think Curtis has made a smart move. You know, you know, he's yeah, you know, he's a he's an adventurous. He's a bit of a rat bag and different things like that. So, yep. you know, being in that Sydney environment, which he found out, um, can sometimes not be. Uh, uh, such a positive outcome. Yeah, fair enough. And he's probably been down in Melbourne and not used to having that kind of spotlight as well. And as you said, they keep you on a really tight raid down there. Um, but on yourself, Scott, when you were playing, just on that topic of the media, did you find yourself, uh, you know, uh, trying to avoid that media light a, a little bit yourself? Or did you sort of try to actively pull yourself out of that light? Or was that just a, a natural thing down in Melbourne because they are a little bit isolated? That's actually funny, isn't it? You kind of enjoyed some anonymity to some degree in both of those yeah. stints. Yeah, which was great. It was funny. When I retired and I moved up to the Sunshine Coast, I, I got more recognition then than I ever did in my rugby league That's great. Mate, look, just on your time in Melbourne, you saw many great players come through that system, obviously. Uh, <laughs> like the likes of Cameron Smith, Cooper Cronk, Billy Slater, Greg Inglis. As a more senior player in that team at the time, did you see... Something pretty special in those guys early on. Yeah, yeah. I I just knew it by their attitude towards hard work and continual. You know the culture that we we developed in Melbourne. It's about continual improvement. It's always working harder at being better. Yeah. And 
they just bought into that whole there solely. And so, you know, when I left in 06 and we got beat by the Bronx, I, I knew that club was going to continue to go on to be what they've become and what they've created, you know, because it's when you, when you have such strong morals and grounded values at that club that we developed in the early days and, you know, they continue those on, uh, there's nothing but um, a breed of success, you know, and, um, you know, they've proven, you know, what what a, what a great sort of foundation that we've, we, we created, but also what a great um, uh, system that they've, they've built on. On that, on that topic of the system, Scott, obviously Craig Bellamy came in 2003. You saw that transition from one great coach in Chris Anderson to another. Um, you were probably yep. spoilt there in terms of your coaches. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, you know training and, and playing under Bellyache? Obviously, you talk about that, that professionalism. Um, he sort of embodies that in modern-day NRL, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He does, but he, he, does, but he doesn't. It's pretty simple, Billy People think that he's a complicated man, but he's not. Okay, um, yeah. He just has strong values about what what's needed to be successful, and one of those main ones is is bloody working hard. Simple as that. You know, when when he turned up for our first pre-season run, we usually run the tan track twice to get into our running groups. You know, our quickies, our fat blokes, our medium blokes, or whatever. Yep. So we run it. We run it twice. That's so a three point eight k run around the, on the other side of the Yarra there from Levy Park, I and mean, we run it, then we have a five-minute break, we run it again. He won it both times. He beat everyone. No way. Yep. How old, so, how old would he have been then? Oh, Bellet would have been mid-40s. Wow. What is he now? 60? Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, that that probably the ad yeah. the maths adds up there. Well, that's a great effort because these aren't you're not slouches. You're first-grade footy players. No, that's it. So, so he stamped his position from day dot, you know, and then from that point he was always in there early. In, the, in his office early when Blaze got the train, he was still in there working afterwards. So, you know, he, it's, it's, it's like in any successful business, sporting team, anything, if you want to breed success and you want to breed certain behaviours, you've got to show them yourself. And he did that from the day dot. And then, and then obviously we, we all bought into that and, um, and worked hard. And yeah, it was tough, but, we, we, we trained tough anyway under Chris Anderson, so tough training was an issue for us. Um, it, it was about just being consistent and, and, and disciplined in that um, moving forward that Bellamy brings to it. What about your personal relationship with Bellamy, mate? How did, how did that go? Because obviously it sounds like you had a closeness with, with Chris. How about how was your personal relationship? Did he get something out of you that as a player that you may not have had before? Do you feel like you improved under him? or? Yeah, I did, but I, I reckon I the system that we, we bring in the last sort of two years or the last year possibly, the leadership system. Yep. If, if that had come in when Bell 8 first got there, I probably would have stayed longer. Uh, it it really? was a great system that, that bring the best out in me. I actually got dropped in that year, 06, because I got suspended for touching the ref and then the boys went, well, I need to say, I've got to leave you out because, you know, this is and this. And what it did is made me work harder on myself and, you know, that... And really buy into that continual improvement. That don't ever get comfortable. You know, no matter who you are, what you are, what you've done, don't be comfortable in where you are. Always look at improving. And from that point when I got dropped, I probably played the most consistent, high 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 level of football that I've played in my whole career. 
Wow. But in that sort of in that period, I'd, I'd made the decision to go overseas. You know, which if it had have happened probably twelve months, eighteen months earlier, you know, I might have been at I probably would have been at Melbourne Storm for 07, 08, But I chose. I suppose I, more than anything, I, I took the easy option. You know, and but I hadn't I hadn't sort of developed that that sort of real understanding of the system, and you know, so to my credit, that system and that high performance and that continual improvement mentality and framework that LA bring helped me become a, a really consistent footballer but more than anything it changed me as an individual it made me become accountable to myself and work really hard and and it's definitely been a major mantra of who I have become in my retiree years you know it's mm. never blame others you know work hard within yourself and take control of the things you need to control Mate, that's a fascinating insight, the fact that, you know, it actually made you reevaluate a previous decision that you'd made to go to the Super League. In light of that, do you do you have any regrets? I, I, I try not to live my life with any regrets, but do you ever look back on that yeah. and go, oh, I would have been, I wish I'd stayed at Melbourne for those extra couple of years, or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, I, I always think about that, yeah. I think I just made a rash decision. Yeah. You know, more so because it was an emotional decision because I got dropped and I thought, well, am I going to get played? You know? And if I had knuckled down and worked hard like I did anyway, uh, I still had two years on my contract there. So, um, yeah. Oh, well, so so it's, a, it's, a, it's a good lesson, isn't it, mate, about um, making not making big decisions when you're still feeling hurt and angry. I know I've done it a few times in my life. Yeah, well, there was a lot of, there was a lot of other things. I had, to, I had to play 80% of my games that year. Oh, okay. And when, and when I get dropped, um, that's when your mind starts going places. You start um, thinking about your, your your back pocket and stuff. Yeah, well, you do. You know, you've got you've got a responsibility as a family and everything yep. like that. And if I don't play the eighty games, eighty percent of my games, I don't get my fourth or fifth year contract. So then, you, then it becomes a security decision, and and. It, had I, if I'd have been stronger in who I am at that stage, I probably should have, I would have knuckled down and worked harder and I would have, you know, I probably would have been there for 07, 08, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, when you think about regrets, yeah, I regret that I made a decision so early and didn't back myself yeah. at that, in the position I was in. But, you know, you as you know, you make decisions in certain areas because of certain circumstances. And, you know, it's probably one I, I kick myself about every now and then, but... You know, that's life. You move on. And I got I had two great years in London. And, you know, I'm alive now, mate. I've had some success. Mate, you had plenty of success, that's for sure. And uh, great you can be so honest about it too because I think that's part of that kind of healing process, isn't it? That you can call out call decisions you've made in your life and think, oh, I probably could, I should have went in that direction there. We, we all make those at various stages. Mate, I want to just back on the Melbourne Storm itself. Obviously, an extremely successful franchise, probably the most successful of the modern era in the National Rugby League competition. I mean, it won a competition in only its second year. I mean, this is a testament to how successful it was. I was just reflecting on, obviously, winning that, that grand final. You weren't a part of that. Can, can you tell me, I guess, walk me through the feelings and emotions you had on grand final day? You put all that work in to, to get the club in that position, but you won't be able to play in the, the, the game of games. How did all that come about? Yeah, it was tough. Um, obviously, um, yeah, obviously because of my shoulder, I had a shoulder recovery mid-year, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's 
funny. Wikipedia says a knee one that wasn't was the shoulder. So, um, yeah, it was it was so it was so unbelievably incredible for the club individually. But it was a tough day. It's hard. Yeah, it would be it's hard. You know, when you work through a club and, and you need to, and to not be part of that game, that to play that game, you know and. As you know, mate, we don't get many opportunities. I mean, next opportunity was 06, and that that wasn't successful either. So, you know, a lot of players don't get those opportunities. You know, so yeah, individually, yeah, it was a it was heartbreak. But as a club, and to be part of that club was 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 like you know, it's like a positive but a negative. You know, you can't take you can't you can't take it away from the guys and what they did. It was amazing for the club, and and it and it was the groundwork that that club needed to become the club it is now. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I, like you said, the most successful NRL franchise, I think they're the most success, successful sporting organisation in Australia. It's tough to yeah. argue with, Scott. I'd probably be inclined to agree with you there. You know, when you you look at what they've done, you also look at, yeah, you look at big clubs like Collingwood and these sorts of clubs, but you look at them, but then you look at their, people forget that they've got a, uh, a netball team that won the first two competi- first two years of the, the national competition also. <laughs> Just yeah, success is everywhere. The sort of, yeah, the same sort of culture and, and instead of standards, you know. So from a commercial point of view, um, yeah, they're in a pretty good position and no doubt Bart coming to board the business is a smart operator and he's, you know, has been, you know, a very good asset to that club. Mate, if it makes you feel any better about the 99 grand final, a mate of mine actually got into a fight, like a physical fight with someone in a couple of years after that grand final because he was at a party and someone was convinced that it was you that got fouled by Jamie Ainscoe at the end of that game. And my mate was going, no, it was Craig Smith. And they had this, this, this verbal battle. So this guy was convinced that you'd played that game and we were a part of it. So I don't know if that does make you feel better, but I uh, just thought I'd lay that on yeah, you anyway. Well, I, hope you, mate, I hope you, mate, knocked him out. If the other bloke classed me as a winger, that is that is. You know what? That's exactly what he said. He goes, why would, why would he be on the wing, mate? But um, look, yeah. you, as you, you mentioned to it, you mentioned it before, mate. You did end up playing in a grand final in two thousand and six. Unfortunately, you didn't get the pickies that day. Um, but it probably was a game that contained one of the greatest passes in your career. The, the round the back ball to uh, Steve Turner, I think it was. Uh, what, what a moment in a grand final! Unfortunately, your team didn't win. But can, can you walk me through that? Do you remember that moment, or was it just all in the heat of battle and you can't really remember? No, I remember I've seen it a couple of times. I haven't watched the game fully, but you know, look, that was a tough, that was a tough night for me that that night. And you know, look, we, I've never been one to criticise referees or anything like that. But we just had a, we had a real tough night that night with the rest. And um, yeah, you know, but at the end of the day, they had a team that was more more experienced for the occasion, and that's why they won the game that night. You know, and you know, we had we had a, we were the we were the best team that year by a country mile, and. But on the night, um, they had more guys ready to play than, than what we did, you know, and that's mm. why they won the game. And, you know, you can't change that every now and then. You, you wish you could. Um, I wish I could every day, but it's um, not going not gonna, to not gonna happen. Well, mate, you certainly did your bit. Your bit. Uh, I know. I think you put Matty King away as well. So you had a couple of try assists to your name there. And uh, as you said, the thing about that Brisbane Broncos team is just how grand final experienced they are. In fact, up until that point, yeah. they'd never lost a grand final. They've only just ha- only happened against the Cowboys a few years ago. So, 
Um, you just sort of have to be making history to beat a team like that. And if you look across the, the 34 players, geez, there's some talent on display there. Yeah, they did. As I said, they'd been in this occasion. They had a lot more players who have been in that occasion often, you know, and that's what grand finals are usually won on, you know. And, you know, Melbourne against Manly um, the, the next year. Um, that's right. Was, it was pretty much the same. Manly weren't ready for it, whereas Melbourne were because they, were, they, they knew what was coming. So, you know, and, and that's, that's a big thing, you know, in those occasions. And that night, Brisbane had, yeah, as I said, they, they were... They were more ready for the emotional and um, mental battle that was ahead um, and, and, than what all of our squad was, I suppose. We had a few that just weren't, weren't ready for it. Mate, I've noticed over the years, I was doing a bit of research on you looking through the highlight reels and uh, you've, you've copped some bad knocks from Queenslanders over the years. I'm not sure if they're just holding a grudge against you or not, but I noticed in Shane, in that grand final, Shane Webke got you a beauty in that one and uh, Gordon Tallis also landed a great one on your, in Origin. Um, have you done something personally to Queenslanders, Scott? What's going on there? <laughs> it's, funny, it's funny. I get on really well with both those blokes now. <laughs> there you go. We're good mates. We're good mates from Pets. We play together and we're always at each other. Webby's always got the fan. Me and him, actually, I, I sort of employed him and bring him on board to do a tour. Um, oh, right. In the, in the 2013 World Cup. So oh, amazing. He helped, he helped me co-host a, a tour, so... Um, <laughs> He had the he had the bragging rights, no doubt. That, that <laughs> yeah, fair enough. He has a few kgs on you as well, I think. But um, that, yeah, you know, yeah, it's good yeah. to know you guys can be friends off the field. That, that's one of the things I love about rugby league. To be completely honest with you, is just how brutal and gladiatorial it is on the field, and the fact that as soon as the whistle goes, everyone sort of shakes hands and gives everyone a hug. Not neat, not you can't give each other a hug right now. Obviously, you have a social distance, but generally speaking, you can. Yeah, yeah, exactly, mate. Yeah, I agree. Mate, um, I noticed, uh, I don't know if you're even aware of this, I noticed the Storm named a 20-year All-Star team a couple of years ago. And yep. I, I know you're in the first decade team, and I noticed that you, a travesty, you weren't in the 20-year the uh, all-time team. That, that's a bit of a G-up, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not here to make you put anyone in the, in the mud here, but, I mean, you're better than Dallas Johnson, Scott. What's doing there? Yeah, I'm not sure, mate. You know, I, I was a, you know, it is what it is. People... People have different suggestions in different areas, but um, uh, look at the end of the day, I was, I was grateful to be in the, the 10-year one now, and uh, they look being a part of that club um, in any way is, is a privilege, and you know, being named in certain sides or anything like that, it's it's not really doesn't really um, bother me too much. Yeah, fair enough. That's a good attitude to have. Um, I noticed Noddy didn't make it either, so two amazing players didn't make it, so you weren't alone. Um, Scott, I noticed you're also you were pretty vocal about players. Seeking help with depression, because um, I yep. notice you, you know, you're on the record of saying you've had your own little sort of battle with the Black Dog as well. Can you tell me a little bit how you felt after retirement and, uh, and also what current NRL players probably should watch out for when it comes to depression? Yeah, I think it's... Even that word depression, I don't, I don't like using it that much, but it's... Yeah, fair enough. I think it's, I think it's more... Um, yeah, for myself, it was just... You know, when you've been doing something since you were 18, virtually, um, till I was sort of 32, you, you have a clear drive, you have a clear direction, you have a clear purpose. Yeah. Um, and as men, we all need that, I think, um, in general. And when you lose that, 
it's a real, it's a real struggle. Mm. Um, I, I always say my timing wasn't good. I, I retired when the GFC hit, and, and I nearly lost everything that I acquired during my footy career, so financially. So Jeez. that was a bit of a that was a um, that was another factor that probably that's a double whammy, helped. isn't it? But yeah, it is. You know, and so, but you know, things are okay now, and I'm back on track, and lost. I can't complain too much, but but I think you know just the uh, you know you have that adrenaline, you have that direction, you have that direct purpose, um, and when that's taken away from you, it's very hard to re-evaluate what's important or what do you want or mm. what gives you that that direction or drive or enthusiasm. Um, you know, and I I, I also think you know, we. We as athletes are no different to our military people. You know, we live a constitutionalised life. Um, and people don't look at it that way. People look at it as us as people that get paid a lot of money. They get mm. to play in front of television, and that's what it is. But, you know, from 18 to 32, I was told where to be, when to do, what to do, and where to be, you know, for 14 years. And that is no different to being in the army. Yeah. You know? You're right, you there's a, a high level of structure you, there, isn't there? Yeah, you live a restricted lifestyle. You live a constitutionalised lifestyle and you're, you're virtually told what to do and where to go. If you, you know, and people don't look at it that way. You mm. know, I didn't get to go, when my, my kids were born, I didn't get to go on school holidays. We didn't get to go on holidays when it suited us. We got to go on holidays in a four-week block at the end of October. Yeah. Yeah, you're you right, know? it's pretty regimented, um, isn't it? Yeah, we couldn't go away fishing with family on long weekends every now and then, and we couldn't get to do this. And my my family's life virtually lived around mine. Yeah, my schedule, you know. And people don't look at it that way, you know. Twenty year olds and that twenty your twenties is about when you get you get to sort of travel the world and just do some fun things before you sort of lock yourself down into you know, building a life. But in a way, it's no different, as I said, to going into the to the army. You've got to be at a certain place at a certain time and you've got to do this and you've got to do that. Yeah. And you don't get a choice in that. So uh, the public needs to understand that, that, yeah, we get they get paid well now, but when it comes to privacy and living a, a life that they choose to live, they don't get that, mm. you know? Um, so that's the downfall of the actual actually when you're doing it. But then when you retire, then it's about, it's redefining yourself. It's finding out what what are your true values. What do you want to get out of life? Where do you want to be? And what are you, what are the legacy you want to leave? And because you're not going to leave, you've already left for the legacy in your rugby league. But now it's about identifying what's your what's your next legacy. Yeah. Or how do you want people to value you when when they when they are at your funeral? I suppose how do you want to be remembered? Mm. You know. And yeah, you'll always have that um, that sort of legacy of people remembering you as a footballer, but. It's only a short time, you know. From from thirty two onwards, it's a long time. So <laughs> that's right. We hope, like for most of us, yeah, I agree with you. And as, yeah, and as, and as and as men, we, you know, we all like to be proud of who we are. But sometimes you you lose focus on that and lose what what that true direction is. Yeah, and it's something that probably doesn't get considered enough, is it? The fact that, um, you know, when people come through the systems and they're an elite sports person that their goals are sort of solely focused on getting these particular things, whether or not it's a swimmer, it's winning a gold at an Olympic Games, or if it's a footy player, it's winning a premiership. But of course, yep. the moment you retire is sudden, 
and you suddenly go, well, what are my goals now? I think that's probably a big part of it too. Oh, it is. And it's, you know, when you've been doing something where you're springing out of bed every day and you love what you're doing, mm. you know, ideally when you retire, you want to be able to do that as well. And, you know, that's that's what I've found. I even at times now, it, it's taken me almost 10 years to really get to that point of understanding, you know, wanting to, you know, to do the things that you want to do, you know, and it's, it's a battle. And, and the statistics show that, you know, how many ex-players go through a battle, you know, and yeah. you hear about it so often, you know, and I think, I don't know if it's a support or it's, you know, it's, I think the NRI do a, a certain degree. I think it's more tick the box for them, but, um, yeah, I think it's something that players just need to start being aware of a lot earlier than their last year of their footy or the second last year, you know? Something yeah. to really try and have something so they have a transition that's not really sudden, that's a, they ingrain themselves into something as they are retiring. Yeah, I think um, that's an important step, you're right. Yeah, so, yeah, but it's it's a challenge, um, challenge for everyone. Scott, I noticed uh, you, you also you manage an athlete management company as well. Um, it says designed to get the, the best out of sports people, personally, professionally, and commercially. Can you tell us a bit about that business and how players can benefit from it? Yeah, I guess more than anything now, that's probably sort of just run by the wayside. I was managing a lot of good young footballers coming through. Yeah. I'm sort of, I've pushed that to the side at the moment while I've, I've developed my business up here. I'm building things this business and self-storage business up here on the sunny coast. So I, I purely wanted to go into that because I just think it's needed. And I still I still believe that player agents don't do what they should do mm. um, for the player's welfare um, and commercially, you know. But that's why I wanted to do it. But it, it's such a it's such a demanding market and it's a, it's a tough market as well as a... I just don't like the morals of the market to a certain degree yeah. and how they behave. So that's sort of why I pull myself away from that. So from my point of view, I don't really do much of that anymore. I'm more just, I like to mentor different young players and different things, but I I actually, I'm just in the process now. I've just, um, I did some um, team leadership and um, team culture alignment from a corporate level. Um, oh, cool. So I've developed the same system that we use at the Melbourne Storm and runs on the same principles of that to a corporate level. Nice. Um, so I'm I'm just I'm just in the process now of developing a package now to um, yeah to present to uh, corporate businesses. To nice one, Scott. That sounds work great. Work on really work a really lean business and high performance level. Um, I think it's and, and use a lot of different sporting analogies and I've got a lot of stories what works and what doesn't work. So it's <laughs> yeah, fair. that's that's yeah, that's the area that I'm I'm sort of in that process of moving into in hopefully in the next six to twelve months. Um, um, and once I get my this sort of myself storage and everything established up here, it's sort of that's my direction I'm looking at going. Yeah, fair enough, mate. Because I can hear it even in the content of what you're talking about now that you know you speak so elegantly about that player funnel, that life cycle of players, and you've lived and breathed it, so you are in that sort of perfect position. So, But I can absolutely see the merit in what you're talking about there with small business too. If anyone, I think that businesses all over the world should be looking at the Melbourne Storm for their business practices because um, yeah, they run, yeah, well, they run everything so well. Yeah, that's a positive, you know. It's not as though like I'm, I'm making up a template that doesn't, hasn't, been, hasn't been proven. 
Um, yeah, exactly. You know, you know, <laughs> I was a part of developing it and living it and breathing it. And, um, and it's, you know, um, I think it, in that corporate level, it's, it's definitely an area that challenges people um, because it's very, it's very uh, engaging, that the program that I use, very open, mm. a lot about feedback, a lot about challenging challenging um, targets and so forth. And But also it's all about, you know, people learning to empower the people below them and, and you know, really, you know, work as a team, you know. And, um, I love it. I think, from a, you know, from a corporate level, people don't, they struggle to work that way. You know, corporate level, people are very individualised. They, they worry about themselves yep. and their own position. Um, whereas, you know, if you can get to a, you know, if you get the right people at the head of the company that want to buy into really wanting to make some change, um, and I think that's the biggest word out of all of this when you go into a corporate level, it's about change. Yeah. Um, some people don't like that, um, but if you want to buy into it and you want to make change, you can make some dramatic changes to businesses, that's for sure. Mate, I'm sure you'd be successful in that space. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that player agent. It's That's an area of the game that cops a lot of... Um, negative press and I think probably for the right reasons it is a bit of a um, uh, a wild west uh, when it comes to the morals of managing players in the NRL it seems and I don't know if you're aware of this did you see that Phil Gould has also set up a business to to get into that area for that very reason he wanted to address all the uh, player welfare issues that aren't being served by self-seeking player managers did you were you across that one at all yeah I saw it I heard a little bit I just haven't really taken much notice of it you know yeah um, yeah. yeah, it'd be interesting to see how Phil goes, but um, oh, look, at the end of the day, it's just, um, yeah, it's just, it doesn't sit easy with me. Um, Fair enough. And that's probably why I sort of pull myself away from it, because it's, yeah, it does, it, it challenges your, your moral compass a bit, mm. um, and yeah, it didn't fit with me. Mate, and you've got to follow your instincts, that's for sure. Well, I'll pull you back from... Um, your businesses for a moment, just to have a look at the NRL in 2020. Uh, obviously, with this whole COVID-19 thing, I'm sorry to bring up that word. I didn't want to, but because uh, <laughs> it is everywhere. But look, it's it's facing an inverted commas crisis at the moment with the suspension of the comp. How do you think the game's handling it so far in terms of the executives, Peter Volandis and uh, Todd Greenberg? Do you think that they're handling this kind of weird situation well, or do you think they could perform better? Oh, look, I don't know. It, it's... It's very hard to judge because one, you don't. I don't know what they've got in the bank. I don't know what they're, you know, you don't know what what their planning is and what what the structure is of the costing of the, the competition. How much money are they going to lose? You know, so yeah. it's, until you know that, it's very hard to make judgment of people. Um, you know, and I think they're doing as good as they can do. I think I think they're a bit like everyone else in any business in in, in the world at the moment is. We're all in uncharted territories. We're in an area that we never thought would even be possible. I know. You know, so so the hardest thing for me is I don't like to judge people if you don't know the full understanding of the position they're in. Yeah, fair um, You know what I mean? And I think, that, you know, there's only so much they can do. You know, I think, you know, there's a, there's a point where the game can survive on so much money and... You can't go past that point. If you go past that point, the game dies, you know. So they've sort of got their hands tied about what they can and can't do, I suppose. But it's about, you know, all they've got to do is got to bring all the people together and, and talk through it and negotiate to to hopefully get to a point where we can get it to the point where 
you know, in hopefully a few years, we're back to where we were, you know, and it's never going to be exactly how it was because it's, you know, there's been a, a massive change, a massive swing in revenue and different things, you know, so they're, I look at it, there could be a lot of positives, you know. I don't think that they'll continue the under-20s competition. Okay, you think they'll scrap um, that? I reckon they won't be able to fund that. Yeah. Um, I reckon they, which it, which I believe that might help country rugby league. So out of it, I think country rugby league might be, get a benefit. You know, kids might stay home longer, play in the bush longer, you know, and and not, not be about money, you know. So... For me, I, I sort of, as I said, I like to try and pick positives out of opportunities. Yeah, you know, and not good outlook. Look at all the negatives, you know. So then they're not going to have the money to be able to do certain things that they're doing now. So what that, you know, look at it as kids stay in the country longer. So you're getting, that might build, you know, you, you have those really good 17, 18, 19-year-olds playing first go for their local team in, in the country. You know, it's good that, that you could see me, a positive out of that. That's a really good point, one I hadn't really yeah, considered before. Yeah, look, I don't know. I could be totally wrong, but I see that as a as a possible, you know, opportunity. You know, I love it. I love the idea of uh, it being an opportunity. And as you said, I think in these kind of uncharted territories, you've got to be looking at, you know, what constructive things can we do for the future that are actually going to improve the game, even though it might come at a cost. Um, yeah. Look, uh, I'll, I'll, what do your instincts say? Just, uh, do you think that we'll see some more footy in 2020? Do you think that uh, there is a chance we'll do a revised comp, a shortened comp? Yeah, I hope so. I yeah, like, me too. <laughs> look, I, 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 I like I like the way. I think I like the way the government's handling things. Well, I just think you know Scott Morrison probably had a few rough ups in the fire bit, but yeah, yeah. not to his, not meaning to be and that sort of stuff. But I think he's. He's really he's strengthened his character a bit in this, the way he's handled. I think this COVID uh, you now and, the, and yeah. the health minister, and I think they're I think they're doing a very good job considering the circumstances. Um, so you know, if they if they do that, and the Australian people want to buy into that and do the right thing, yeah, I think we will see some footy. Yeah. I love your um, optimistic attitude, Scott. I want that's what I wanted to hear. I just wanted to hear that for my own mental well-being. I think. But... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, you got to look at it that way, you know, and, and stop. And people have got to stop listening to bloody world news about what's going on in everywhere else in the world. You know. Yeah. We're a different country. We're different. We've got a different way of life. We live differently, and I think all those factors are, are positive to us against this COVID nineteen. Yeah, we're on an island. We can shut up shop. We're not stuck. We're not landlocked in the middle of Europe, you know. Exactly. Yeah, we've so, got some natural advantages. Yeah, we do, and I think people are going to look at that way. And we've got we've got the best medical system in the world, you know. Don't don't ever under underestimate what our medical system is like, you know. And that's where, yeah, for me, I I, I look at it much more as a positive rather than a negative, you know. It's probably something that's helped you for your career, Scott, I'd say. It's, good. it's a good attitude to have. Look, I'm going to wrap up the interview, mate, with my voluntary tackle fast five questions. Are you ready? Sure, mate. <laughs> Shoot. Mate, uh, which TV show are you not proud to admit you watch regularly? Uh, I don't know. What do I watch regularly? I don't know. I'm proud to watch. I watch Grand Designs. I love it. Okay. Well, I'd call that a shame. That's... <laughs> <laughs> <That's fine. laughs> Mine's maths for the record. I, I'm hooked on it. I can't get off it. 
Oh, no, no, I just don't go there. Mate, you're a better man than I am. Um, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Builder. Oh, I love it. If you've got a day to yourself with no distractions, what do you enjoy doing the most? Jeez, what do I enjoy doing? Being in the outdoors. Yeah, love it. Yeah, out there. What's your outdoor activity of choice? Do you go fishing? Or? Uh, yeah. I'm at the moment, I'm loving me CrossFit, but but I, I just like <laughs> yep. I like hiking. I like hiking through the bush. Oh, I love running. it. Yeah, nice. Yeah, there's some really good mountains up there in the sunny coast here. Like some really good uh, hikes to do. So I like that. Enjoy it. it helps you. Mate, helps you feel. Getting very jealous here in in the inner west of Sydney. If you could assume <laughs> the life of any celebrity, who would it be? I don't think It's probably uh, a good thing, mate. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Um, you probably choose Scott Hill. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, Liam Hemsworth. He, he looks like he's, he's got a good mixture of Hollywood and chilling at Byron Bay and that sort of stuff. Love it. Yeah, I think I honestly think that's probably he does come across like that, but I reckon he genuinely is like that. Just my opinion. Yeah. Um, mate, yeah. and this is the most important question: Do you prefer Smarties or M and M's? Shit. <laughs> That's the biggest uh, sort of inhale exhale we've got from you in the whole interview. Yeah, <laughs> I think Smarties, eh? You got to stick to the originals, mate. mate. M Ms is just a copy. M Ms is just a copy, mate. <laughs> I love it. For the record, I'm a Smarties man all the way through, mate. Scott, you, thank mate. you so much for joining us on the Voluntary Tackle today, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure and privilege to chat with you about your career and. Uh, and your life and all that kind of jazz and um, yeah, I hope the, the rest of your week in lockdown goes goes smoothly for you. Cheers mate, well, I'm in lockdown, I'm in a truck for five days. And that's so a different that's kind of lockdown, isn't it? <laughs> that's been lockdown. <laughs> but um, mate, hopefully we can have you on the show again if you'll have us, but um, if yeah, not, yeah. Yeah, absolutely mate. Mate, it was an absolute pleasure. Cheers mate. See ya.